Hallelujah. Father, we pray two things this morning. First, that in our service, every element of it, that the glory would be offered to Jesus Christ and that as we praise Him with the confessions of these songs, with the testimony of the saints, with the proclamation of Your Word, with our attention to its truth, and with our faith following this place, that it would rise before the throne of our Lord and Savior as a sweet-smelling incense. We also pray, Lord Jesus, that not, not only that You would be glorified, but that we would see Your glory. As we sung as well, that temple vision of your servant Isaiah, who is laid low before the glory of Almighty God in that vision of you, Jesus Christ, as the apostle reveals upon your throne, aware of his sin and need of atonement, and then having the coal touched his lips, anointed and equipped to share the glory of Christ with others. And so we pray in the giving of praise to you in this service and the proclamation of the truth of your scripture that you would be glorified and that we would see your glory. And that in seeing your glory, we'd be changed to repent of our sin, to be conformed to the image of Christ, and that we'd be equipped for the call to testify, to glorify, to point to Christ our Lord as we move on from this place to seek to be obedient to our King of kings and Lord of lords who sits enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high forever, heir of the nations, King of kings and Lord of lords, our Savior, who died and rose again and ascended to rule and reign forever. It's His name, the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. And it's His name, the name of Jesus Christ, that we seek to glorify this day. Amen. Hallelujah. What a great privilege to gather together as the saints of God in this local body, which is our family, and I'm always impressed or I'm always reminded of how easy it is to take this for granted, especially when you miss a Sunday on vacation. As refreshing and a blessing as it was, it's equally a joyous to be back with the family of God and to be worshiping the Lord with you and opening His Word together. I'd encourage you to do that with me today by turning to Psalm 119 as we continue our once-a-month series through this great and longest of all the songs in the Scripture. Today we'll be considering the fifth stanza, eight verses, under the Hebrew letter title He, that is H-E pronounced He, and under this subtitle for our message today. I'm going to need some batteries there, really. Under the subtitle of my message today, The Trial of Worldly Temptations. Turning in your scriptures to Psalm had that sense, maybe I should check the batteries, and I didn't listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and pay the consequence. In your scriptures, in Psalm 119, 33 through 40, we consider these eight verses under the title, The Trial of Worldly Temptations, and the Hebrew letter, Hey, with an aim to proclaim the glories of a king worthy of unquestioned obedience. The aim of this message is to proclaim the glories of a king, Jesus Christ, worthy of of unquestionable obedience. With your Bible and your hearts open as you're able, could you stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence this day? And let us consider Psalm 119 verses 33 through 40 in your hearing as the immutable and errant word of God is proclaimed to us this day. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. 
Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let me introduce our message today in this section of the Psalter by comparing the book of Ecclesiastes, the lessons of Solomon, with the message of hay, the trial of worldly temptations, and the superiority and sufficiency of the Word of God to fight the temptation of worldly and worthless things. As our psalm has opened with these dual themes, just to bring again to your attention, the sufficiency of the Word of God, major theme. The Word of God is sufficient for every trial, and our psalmist has made this point so far by declaring in the second section, the Word of God is sufficient for the trial of youth. In the third stanza, the Word of God is sufficient for the trial of sojourning. Our last message, the Word of God is sufficient for the trial of sorrow. And in our message today, this section, the fifth passage or stanza, the Word of God is sufficient for the trial of worldly temptations or worthless, selfish gain. So the dual themes, the sufficiency of the Word of God and the trying journey of life, it does seem fitting that our author would add to the record of presenting trials that of worldly temptations. Combining the challenges presented in verses 36, selfish gain, 37, worthless things, and 39, the reproach that I dread, we might summarize the enemies of his soul this way. He addressed this section as, or these enemies as, the selfish gain of worthless things, yielding dreadful reproach. There is always this temptation that our desires and our pursuits, our goals and ambitions would be distracted towards that which the psalmist describes in these terms, the temptations of selfless, selfish gain, of worthless things which yield dreadful, that is shameful, consequences or reproach. Though young and old battle this foe, this enemy of our souls, it is particularly tempting or tantalizing uh, in the naivete, uh, in the uh, times of youth. And this is fitting as well as the theme of this song kind of moves uh, according to the progression or maturity of a saint from his youth unto the fullness of age. Solomon, the presumptive author, most assume he's the author of Ecclesiastes. He provides us, I would say, the classic example of these lessons learned, if you will, the hard way. In spite of Deuteronomy 17, 16 through 17, which says this, only speaking to the future king, a hypothetical king, this is Moses giving the people instructions. When someone is to be anointed to rule over them, he says, the Lord speaking through him, only he, the king, must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Did, kids, did Solomon break those instructions? Did he break those rules? Horses, riches, wives. Which counsels, uh, so Deuteronomy 17 counsels the king not to acquire excessive horses, which represents military might, wives, which represents allegiances with other kings, but also polygamy and riches. In spite of this admonition, Solomon's kingdom was known worldwide for record holdings in all three of these categories. Yet in the end, what do we see in his experience? These things, riches, might, and women, and uh, through that, um, alliances and allegiances, false covenants with other kings, proved to be the selfish gain of worthless things yielding dreadful reproach. Just like the psalmist says in Psalm 119, great reproach and disillusionment was the fruit of pursuing these kinds of things. This proved to be, if you will, the true reward of Solomon's worldly gain. The preacher, Ecclesiastes, he laments this in chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, saying, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, 
a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. He continues, the author of Ecclesiastes, we assume Solomon in verse 6, even though he should live uh, a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. In other words, if death is in our future, then who cares if there is all this luxury on the way? In the end, it proves to be, again, the selfish gain, worthless things, yielding dreadful reproach. This is the bitter truth, the author of Ecclesiastes says, of life under the sun. Worldly gain empties the soul. A worldly gain in and of itself as an end in and of itself. This is a bleak picture indeed. Until, a bleak picture until one repents and submits his life to not just that under the sun, but submits his life under the fear of the Lord. The preacher concludes his thoughts echoing the great admonition of Psalm 119 at the end of Ecclesiastes. The end of the matter, all has been heard. We'll see the statutes, or I'm sorry, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man, close quote. So according to Solomon, the author of Ecclesiastes, we assume, one day everyone will see that the statutes, this, these are words now from Psalm 119, the statutes, the law, the commandments, the testimonies, the ways, the promises, the rules and precepts of God. They are the true riches. One day everyone will see that these things that are listed in our text today are immeasurably superior, precious, and to be desired above all other wealth, possessions, and honor promised by selfish gain. Today, the goal of my message is that we would be convinced of this reality by the Word of God, lest we be found wanting in the balances one day. This is the story of so many in rich societies like ours and kings such as Belshazzar, who in Daniel 5, 24, 28, was weighed in the balances. You remember what the prophet said? Was written by the very hand of God on the wall of the palace of the once great king, the emperor of the day, the one to be feared, the richest of all, many, many tackle parson. You are weighed in the balances and found wanting. Today, your kingdom will be taken from you and given to the Persians, the richest, most powerful man in all the earth, the Bill Gates of his day, or whatever rich and powerful, influential human being you want to you know, imagine in our hour. In one hour, in one hour, the riches and the wealth and the influence and the power of that man was transferred, boom, in one moment to another king, proving that there is a day of reckoning. And on the final day, people will realize that worldly temptations are nothing but the selfish gain of worthless things yielding dreadful reproach. Will we learn this by reading and heeding the word of God or will we learn it the hard way? like Belshazzar on the final day. The days of your kingdom have been brought to an end. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. May our prayer echo that of the author of Psalm 119, 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Amen? In the interest of heeding the word of God, or, I love this phrase, to substitute the word of God, covenant revelation, that's what the word of God is, and it's a major theme in Psalm 119. All these synonyms, statutes, law, commandments, testimonies. In the interest of heeding these things, that is, in summary, the covenant revelation of God, the psalmist, our author today, expounds the relationship between four things or in four categories. Number one, there's a relationship between understanding and obedience. Secondly, there's a relationship between affections or desires and obedience. Thirdly, there's a relationship between faith and obedience, verse 38, and then final two verses, 39 and 40. There's a relationship between obedience and life. Those first three are conditions, understanding, 
desires, and faith are needed to obey our King, Jesus Christ, the one who is deserving and worthy of unquestionable obedience. The fourth is a reward. Obedience of Jesus Christ leads to life. There are three purposes of the law. Let me just introduce these points this way. In a good systematic theological understanding, I submit, of the use of the law in Scripture, historically we recognize in sound teaching, I submit, three purposes or uses of the law. Number one is to tell the king how he should rule his nation. It's the civic use. Number two is to reveal to us our sin. It shows the holiness of God and that all men fall short. Number three, pedagogical, meaning teaching as to children, it shows us how we can worship our king who saved us. Is the law of God valuable and applicable to you, believer, if you have repented and believed? Absolutely. You should embrace the law of God, especially individually, as to its third use. The rules, the statutes, the testimonies, the precepts, all these synonyms for the law of God, they show you how to obey your king. They teach you how to worship the God that shed his blood to save you in taking on flesh, Jesus Christ. Should we not heed these words and therefore join the psalmist in love and appreciation of all of these things summarized by that term, the law, or the covenant revelation of God? Absolutely. Third use of the law. In order to obey our King Jesus, who deserves our unquestionable obedience, who laid down his own life to save us, we need to have understanding of his word. Notice 33. Here's the prayer. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. Why does the psalmist ask to be taught? And I will keep it to the end. Do you see the relationship? He needs to be taught the statutes of the Lord so that he can obey his king, his Lord. 34. Furthermore, he says, Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it my whole heart. With my whole heart. Do you see it there again? Give me understanding. I need to understand. I need knowledge of your truth so that what? So I, I can observe it. That I can obey with my whole heart. Psalm 119, 33, and 34 teach us that there's a relationship between knowledge and obedience. Obeying Jesus Christ requires a knowledge of his holy word, and therefore it should be our prayer and our discipline to understand what he has said. We cannot obey and follow our king without understanding the instructions that he has given us. Let me ask you this question. Who is your teacher? Who is your teacher? The psalmist prayed that Jesus Christ, ultimately speaking, would be his teacher. Do you remember what the disciples called Jesus in the New Testament? A common name, a reverential and appropriate one, was rabbi, which means what? Kids, what does rabbi mean? Anyone know? Shout it out if you know. Teacher is correct. Jesus was referred to as teacher. Jesus himself was the teacher of his disciples. That is the relationship between Christ, in part described by that word rabbi, between those who followed him. And this was a fulfillment and an answer to the very prayer of Psalm 119, 33. Teach me who, O Lord, the way of your statutes. Who is your teacher? In our society today, in American culture, education is one of those sacrosanct things. It's like an idol. It's highly valued. Oh, you'd have to get a good education. Higher education, academia, you know, college, and further whatever acquisition of knowledge is highly valued. But not all education is created equal, is it? What makes the difference? Well, in a word or in a phrase, who is your teacher? If your teacher is basically giving you training on how to pursue things of selfish gain and worthless worldly temptations unto a reproachful end, then that education has no value at all. It all depends on who your teacher is. Now, even as I say this, we recognize that God uses means to teach. He teaches us through parents, doesn't he, kids? God gives your parents the uh, duty, the calling, the special job to teach you, to train you in the things of the Lord. God gives pastors, teachers, and apostles. We see their words in Scripture to teach us in regards to the apostles. Pastors who are to echo their words, and their words are to be held to that standard today as a legitimate teaching role. God can use nature itself to teach of his, of his thing. Chiefly, all these things are measured by his word. And yes, God can also use, quote-unquote, higher education. But it must be subject to his word. His word is the standard which tells us who is teaching us. 
Is it the devil and his plans and schemes and his ideas and worldviews and philosophies and false religions and ideals and worthless pursuits? Or is it the Lord Jesus using these different means to teach us his way? This is extremely important because you can't obey Christ without being taught by him. There is a relationship between your knowledge of his word and your obedience to your king. And therefore, it is of utmost importance that parents, pastors, professors, experts, whoever, and those who presume to rule in case of the civil magistrate and otherwise, and all of these offices, and all of these legitimate administrations when properly submitted to Christ, it is of utmost importance that everything they say, everything that they proclaim and instruct be held accountable to the Word of God. May it be the prayer especially of those in places of influence and authority. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Because there are people that are influenced by my words and by my directives, and it, their blood will be, so to speak, on my hands if I are to lead them astray. What does Jesus, our great teacher, say? It is better that a millstone be hung around someone's neck and he be thrown into the sea than to teach error to little ones, than to lead them astray by your false values and your uh, whatever, temptations to worthless gain that leads to a reproachful end. That's how serious it is, according to our teacher. Relationship between teaching of Jesus, by Jesus Christ of His Holy Word and keeping His statutes. In verse 34... The psalmist similarly asks for understanding. Give me understanding that I may keep your law. Obedience requires not just that Jesus Christ himself teach you, but of course that you comprehend what he says. A comprehension, that is an understanding of the word of God, is necessary for you to obey Jesus. To illustrate this point, I'll just give you a little uh, summary of a conversation that Nikki and I had. She was countering a Mormon online. One thing Mormons teach and believe is that you can be baptized in the place of somebody else. And, they, and if you ask that, or if you tell them, well, that's certainly not a Christian or a biblical thing to do, they will cite you a verse, and it will be 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Well, what's missing is the context. And there Paul says, in so many words, it is clear that you yourselves affirm the resurrection, otherwise there'd be no reason to baptize on behalf of the dead. But in context of the rest of Scripture, this is how scripture ought to be read, we know the limitations of Paul's argument. He is pointing out that innately, even if you follow some superstitious ritual or practice, all men ultimately know that there is an afterlife. And I submit to you, study it on your own, compare it to the rest of scripture, that is the limitations of the context. But you see, a proper understanding of the word of God when it comes to texts like that is necessary for us to obey Christ. Jesus says, Go and baptize people in my name. Make disciples of all nations. And, you know, Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Does that mean, well, the Mormons would say yes, but we say no. That we baptize everybody we can think of that's already died in hopes that that baptism might be efficacious to save them in the afterlife? No. Because the rest of Scripture, through a sound hermeneutic, that is a disciplined way of understanding the context of, of a text, especially the Bible, would instruct us otherwise. So we would be disobeying Jesus Christ if we would have a baptism service next week baptizing on behalf of dead people. Why? Well, we, or how do we know this? We know this from a proper understanding of the Word of God. You see, give understanding that I may keep your law. Let me comprehend and understand your scriptures so that I might obey you, so that I might be faithful to follow you as my king and do so righteously. Thirdly, under this relationship or point of relationship between knowledge and obedience, there is a scope phrase or phrase that illustrates scope in both of these parallel texts, 33 and 34. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes and I will keep it. He says, here's the scope to the end. What does the psalmist mean here? Well, certainly to the end of his life, and perhaps we could add to the fullness of his instruction. So teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes and I will keep it all my days and I will keep it total in full. That would be the idea poetically expressed there in the 34. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart, everything within me. Wholehearted observation. So let me, O Lord, based on my understanding of your scriptures, be equipped 
to keep your law my whole life long, no matter the trial, no matter the presenting trials we've seen through the course of Psalm 119, whether it be the trials of youth or sorrows or sojourning or the temptation of worldliness, let me nevertheless my whole life be faithful to follow you and let me do it with my whole heart. Scope, whole heart, and whole life. This is the wholehearted observation that the psalmist prays that he would be equipped to observe. Both verses conclude with this reference to scope. In reference to the law, to the end of the law and the end of his days, in total and his whole life long, with his whole heart, utmost commitment and sincerity. By the way, those who are in positions of power and influence are perhaps most tempted, I would suggest, to sins of pride and self-confidence. If you have some influence over people, if you already are a leader, like we mentioned before, the example of Solomon, you might think to yourself, I really am equipped already in and of myself. It is of utmost importance that a Solomon or anyone in a position of influence heed these words, to humbly bow before his teacher, Jesus Christ, and before the content of that teaching, the law of God. Deuteronomy 17 continues to make this point, a parallel text. When he, the king, sits on the throne, this is verse 18 of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Off the top of my head, I can't think of too many constitutional amendments that I would support. I mean, the Constitution is something of an impressive document. But I can tell you one amendment I would support. Let's, let's amend the Constitution, I might propose, the Word of God, more authoritative than me, of course, immeasurably so, that anyone serving in a position of authority is not fit for office, is not qualified to even be elected or in the running unless he literally writes with his own hand an entire copy of the Word of God. How much better? And not only that he would write it on the paper, but he would hold it close in his heart. What if, that was, what if our Constitution was amended for that provision so that anyone serving in authority? Oh, well, first of all, you get all of the reprobate screaming theocracy at you. But once the dust of that backlash settles down and you get over the nervousness of being a, you know, basically a contrarian voice in an apostate world, you suddenly realize that, man, would our nation be due for a revival if that was the case? Because what kinds of things might that individual be committing to his heart? Humility, self-sacrifice, objective standards of ethics, not overstepping his bounds and jurisdiction and role, looking to Jesus as the author and finisher of his faith and also the chief king and exemplar of good governance. Look to the law of God, perfect, just, and sound, as a standard of jurisprudence. You know, the book of Deuteronomy says that the nations, if you walk in these ways, if you follow these instructions from Deuteronomy 17, the nations will envy the peace and prosperity that attends your way. Now, is anyone satisfied with the peace and prosperity, emotionally, psychologically, that we feel in this nation? No. If you just look at the polls, what's missing? The law of God, treasured, proclaimed, and adhered to on paper and in the heart of those who serve in any position of influence. It's easy to point our fingers to Capitol Hill, but remember, you have a little Capitol Hill, as it were, in your home. Open the word of God, men. Open the word of God, husbands, and be that voice that God has called you to be, the voice of Jesus, teaching your family, rightly understanding what is there contained in these words. There is a relationship between knowledge and obedience. In the interest of heeding God's word, the psalmist expounds another relationship. That would be between desires and obedience. Notice back in our text in Psalm 119 how he continues in verse 35. 
Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. So following uh, God's commandments is related to our delight, our love for them. That stands to reason, does it not? 36, incline my heart. That's another phrase that indicates desires or affections. Incline my heart. means like the desires and the deep longings of my soul to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Let me put aside the temptations of worldliness. Let me instead be attracted to and pursue your testimonies. And then in verse 37, similar language, turn my eyes from looking at worthless, worthless things and give me life in your ways. Again, a turning of the eyes. So there are three, uh, and there are three references uh, to the human being, if you will, one implicit to explicit, to help illustrate this point of affections and obedience. The feet, the heart, and the eyes. These are three recurring analogies in Scripture to describe our desires. Our feet, that which we are compelled to pursue, that which we follow after. I remember uh, one night that I saw, you know, Elon Musk has been shooting these satellites into space or whatever, these low-orbit Starlink deals. And I suspect that's what happened one night as I saw those things reflecting some sunlight from over the horizon. And there was just this array of like 40 weird-looking, symmetrically fly, almost like a, um, a herd of geese, but some weird technology. So what did I do as I saw this for the first time? Well, I was dazzled, right? So I pulled out my phone and uh, the clumsy, you know, technicians such as I haven't couldn't find in fast enough to take a video, but I started walking down the road. Well, in that moment, my feet were following something that was compelling to my eyes and interesting to my soul. And it's a picture of what's illustrated here. That which holds your attention, you find the most interesting, you long to pursue, you're curious about, you desire to understand, that is the direction that your life will go. And that's what's pictured here. The psalmist prays to the Lord. He asks him that he would lead him in the path of his commandments. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. It reminds us of Psalm 23, does it not? Lead me in the paths of righteousness for your namesake. May God be glorified in the way of life that I pursue as I seek to be obedient to Jesus, understanding that I will be obedient to him when I love his ways. Give me a delight, O Lord, in the way that you have laid down in your scriptures. The path of the feet indicates discipline. It indicates a purposeful direction, a lifestyle, as we mentioned, a way of life. It parallels that Psalm 23 picture of the good shepherd leading us in the way of righteousness. These are not easy paths, however, and our psalm makes that point very clear as well. Will you delight in the law of the Lord if it leads you and through the path of righteousness in the shadow of death? Will you delight in the law of the Lord, and in the path of righteousness, if it leads through the trials of worldly temptations, if it leads through the trials of sorrow, of sojourning, the trials of youth, and a hundred others that we can imagine. The psalmist asked that the Lord would give him this kind of consistent longing for the Lord, that in spite of the difficulty, the presenting trials, be it temptation or suffering, be it persecution or distraction, that he would remain faithful, that his feet would remain on the path, that he would continue to delight in the Lord. Delighting in the Lord is necessary for obedience. How much easier is it, uh, kids, to obey your parents when they tell you, I want you to go chew that bubble gum right now? Well, since, you know, Mike, if your kids are anything like mine, they love bubble gum, so that's an easy commandment to obey. How much easier is it to obey somebody you know, who has just saved your life. You feel indebted to them. You feel that you owe them, like there's this overwhelming sense of obligation. So what greater value and gift has God given to us than bubblegum? I mean, (laughs) to compare the two is almost blasphemy, of course. And how much greater of a debt we owe to the Lord on account of the sacrifice he has made on our account. You see, meditating on the gospel, both its promise of eternal life and its payment, the death and blood of Jesus on the cross, is meant to increase our delight in him. Why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper every month? In part, this is why. So that we return to that evidence before us at the Lord's table of the great cost of our salvation, where the perfect sinless one 
stooped low, taking on the burden of our sin and the shamefulness of humanity, being crucified on that cruel cross to pay for our sins. And as we behold in the cup and in the bread, these symbols of the expensive cost of our salvation, it ought to increase our love and appreciation and delight in our Savior who would die to save us, undeserving, wicked, hell-bent sinners, deserving only of the wrath of God. But as the Lord increases our delight through these means, what does it yield? Obedience. The path of our feet becomes purposeful, more disciplined, and more enduring, no matter the trial. There's a relationship between the inclinations of our heart and obedience as well. Verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Inclination of the heart. Think of the source of inspiration, that which you are really get excited about and pursue. Ask the Lord that he would make this, that the roots of your deepest desires would find a firm footing in the law, the precepts, the testimonies, that is the covenant revelation of the Lord. So I'm going to break one of my little rules of thumb, which is not to use my kids as an illustration for a sermon. This one is just way too awesome. And it's a three-year-old, so he's not going to remember this one day. I hope for his sake. So I walk around the corner, and of course, Dad's trying to watch the kids while Mom's gone. And I'm doing, uh, I don't know, well, you give me maybe a C, probably a D after this event happened. So I walk around the corner, and there's Bash, our three-year-old, and he's sitting on the counter in a puddle of, well, you guessed it. He deferred his potty training discipline and duties for another priority, which was stealing his brother's Ben and Jerry's ice cream out of the freezer and just eating it. And so I'm like, the first thing I say, of course, is, Sebastian, you cannot do this. You can't steal your brother's ice cream, and when you have to go potty, you have to go potty. And he's sitting there in a pool eating this Ben and Jerry's, and his answer was, but I love it. <clears throat> that was his justification for what he did. And of course, that's a humorous coming from a three-year-old, but it also happens to be a perfect illustration of any kind of idolatry. The older we get, the more sophisticated we get in our self-justification. But let's be honest. Anytime we fall into sin, anytime our desires become in, in disarray and our priorities are askew and we lose our delight and our, our desire to obey Jesus Christ, the Lord walks around the corner and where does he find us? He finds us a, in a puddle of our own self-indulgence, stealing ice cream, and our only justification, I love it. I'm delighting in the wrong things. And in so doing, I'm breaking God's law. A good definition for idolatry, by the way, is that which you will break God's law to hang on to. And in the moment, for a three-year-old, that's your brother's ice cream. You're going to break God's law to hang on to it. Uh, stealing, you know, and a few others come to mind. What, do you, what are you tempted to break God's law to hang on to? To lie about because you prefer to keep? Or to defer your obligations to the Lord and, and uh, a consistent obedience to Him because your delight and desires are in another place? You see, no matter the age, whether you're three years old or 80 years old, somewhere in between older or younger still, our prayer should be, O Lord, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. There is a relationship between our heart, our affections, our desires, and obedience to the Lord. Feet, heart, and eyes. And of course, that third one we won't spend much time on because we've emphasized it so much lately. But it's, that, it's similar to that lifting up the eyes language. That which holds our attention, that which compels our affections, and our desires. In the New Testament, if you're looking for a good parallel text and example, a positive one, um, you know, in contrast to the one I just gave you, would be Paul in Acts chapter 20, verses 24, 28, 33. He's given instructions to the elders of Ephesus that he hopes will be sufficient to equip the church in his absence. And he tells them that the church was worth giving one's life for because Jesus purchased it with his own blood. It's a value judgment. He also says, as a minister, I sacrificially served and I was not tempted to covet or towards uh, riches in the cause of his ministry. And there you see by Paul's apostolic testimony, priorities in a good place, recognizing the value of the sweet fellowship of the saints and that things that you would otherwise pursue, 
if they become higher on that priority, they betray breaking the law of God, covetousness. I mean, I don't mean to be legalistic, but generally speaking, there is truth to this statement. If someone always defers fellowship with the saints because they're working on a Sunday, I mean, I understand there's providential hardship. This principle doesn't apply in every case. But let's be honest. In American society today, the allure of bettering our livelihood through acquisition and our vocation, worldly means and vocations, if that causes us to put as a secondary priority the fellowship of the saints, those who Jesus died for, it can be a real problem. And it can illustrate uh, a desire and affection that's disordered. There is a relationship between our affections and obedience. Watch where your feet want to walk. Uh, be careful and attentive to that which your heart is inclined to. And pay close attention to what your eyes uh, feast upon, lifting up the eyes upon Jesus Christ as Isaiah saw him in that temple vision. We sang of it today. That's the vision of repentance, to turn our eyes from foolish things and to lift up our eyes upon Jesus. The things of earth would grow strangely dim in the light of his glorious grace, as another hymn also sings. Number three, there's a relationship between faith and obedience. Just one verse on this point. Confirm, verse 38, to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Again, there's a condition of fearing the Lord is that the promises of the Lord would be confirmed to the author. Confirmation. Communicate to my soul by virtue of your testimonies, the certainty of your promises. Is this not what the Lord did for Jacob when he gave him the dream prophetically that heaven and earth would be bridged in the staircase that is Jesus Christ, giving him the courage to walk and to set his eye away from the employ of his father-in-law and to set his feet towards the promised land and lift up his eyes to the promises of God, though it required trial. And this is the pattern in Jacob's life that we've been studying of late, but this confirmation of the Lord's promises to us is foundational to our obedience. Think of the promises throughout Scripture. The covenant was given to Adam, the promise of hope and the seed of the woman to come. The covenant was reiterated and unfolded in more detail to Noah as he stepped foot off the ark. And even that experience was covenantal. It illustrated an ark to come, Jesus Christ, who will save you by a baptism, what it pictures, through the waters of judgment. There was a promise to Abraham afterwards in a further unveiling that this would come through a significant son of extraordinary birth. And of course, there was a promise to David that one would reign on his throne forever. Again, that promise unfolded. There's a promise to the church, to you and me. Matthew 28, right at the end, as we referenced before, I will never leave you, forsake you. Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. There's a promise to us furthermore in Acts chapter 1, as the disciples stare up into the heavens. Why you stand there, people, staring up into the sky? Don't you know that he will return just as he went? The Lord is coming again, and he will keep us between now and then. And these are the promises, and we have something to share. So there's a relationship between our faith and these yet future promises, eternal glory, the return of Jesus Christ, the fullness of what he died to secure manifest in our experience and in our purchase upon in heaven and the glorious renewal of all things in the new heavens and new earth one day. There's a relationship between faith and that and our obedience. What gives a martyr the strength to endure the sword, to be burned in the flames on the pyre of persecution, or to not confess that Caesar is Lord when he's thrown to the lions in an ancient Roman Colosseum, or to stand and proclaim with boldness to a crowd knowing he would give his head on the guillotine of tyranny in mere moments, that there is one way to be saved. Only the man, only the woman, who believes that Jesus Christ is stronger than death. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and we celebrate his resurrection every Sunday, it confirms to our soul by the testimony of the apostles that our God is stronger than the worst of all enemies. And if he is with us, who can be against us? And as we behold these promises, our faith is strengthened, and we begin to have grace and strength to obey Jesus Christ. And we begin to fear him as we ought. Meaning the result is that we, act, we walk in reverential, wholehearted resolve to faithfully obey our Savior and Lord 
who defeated the grave and his resurrection on the third day after paying for our sins on his death in Calvary on the cross on that uh, glorious day of absorbing the wrath of God and then being resurrected unto the promise of resurrecting his own one day. This is the relationship between faith and obedience realized in the gospel of Jesus Christ that is in principle reiterated in Psalm 119, 38. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Let me grow in my fear of you as you remind me of the truthfulness of your holy word. Final point this morning. We've considered that heeding God's word, in heeding God's word, there's a relationship between knowledge and obedience, between desires and obedience, between faith and obedience. Those are three conditions. Now let's move to reward. The emphasis shift from the, shifts from the conditions of obedience to the rewards of obedience in the final two verses. There's a relationship between obedience and life. 39, turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. In your righteousness, give me life. May I be rescued from the reproach and the shame and the guilt, the shamefulness of my sinful state. By what? By the goodness of your rules. Life and obedience, good rules, desirable precepts, and resurrecting righteousness. The psalmist acknowledges these things as rewards of obedience. Again, that emphasis shifts to the glories of following Christ, as it were. Good rules? That's contrary to popular opinion, isn't it? Let me ask you a question. If someone came up to you and said, oh, so do you believe the Bible? You're a Christian, you believe the Bible? Do you believe all the Bible? You can almost sense that they're leading you somewhere, but of of course, I trust you're compelled to answer yes, of course, I believe all of the Bible. Well, what do you say when your Bible teaches you that if someone has crushed reproductive organs, that they're not welcome to worship God or even be in the community of the people of God? That's the way it was in the Old Testament. Is that a true statement? It is a true statement. And someone, an unbeliever, might bring this up, first of all, maybe trying to embarrass you and shame you for what the Bible that you believe in uh, secondly, to, to, to say, to infer, to imply that this kind of sanction, this kind of punishment is entirely unjust. It's embarrassing and unjust that your holy book says that someone with crushed reproductive organs is not welcome to be in the same community with the rest of the privileged people. How are you going to answer? Well, I would not exactly know how, except that that question has come up in my mind before, and I had some helpful study and input, and now I'm ready, and I'm going to try to make you ready for that answer as well. If you turn to Acts, I believe it's chapter 8 or 9, right in there, there is an apostle who has translated Thomas on a special mission to give the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch, an outsider by two measures. Number one, crushed reproductive organs, so to speak. Number two, he is from a different ethnicity entirely. This individual would be someone outside of the people of God. But what changed when Jesus Christ came to secure every hope, the hope of redemption for all people, tribes, tongues, and languages? What happened was, is what was pictured in the ceremonial law, the stage was set to feature the redemptive power of Jesus Christ when the fullness of the gospel was manifest. So in the Old Testament, some of these symbolic and ceremonial laws, they set the stage for the glory of Christ. And then Christ came and he showed that the gospel is able to redeem and to heal, ultimately speaking, one whose reproductive organs are crushed and what doesn't privilege to grow up in the environment and the culture of the people of God. The seed and the covenant were very closely connected. If it wasn't for the preservation of the seed, the covenant would continue. There's a lot going on here. Thus, it was very important. There's something that is taught by the law that is important to understand in the fullness of its context. That which is prohibited in the Old Testament often sets the stage for the redemptive glory of God when Jesus Christ heals and welcomes into his fellowship the once outcast leper. You see, the same question could be raised about leprosy. Well, do you believe in a religion who would discriminate against somebody with a bad disease? No, I don't believe in discrimination that way. Oh, you don't, huh? Well, I was reading the Old Testament, and it turns out that lepers aren't welcome in the people of God. How will you answer that question? The same one. 
Did you know that the ceremonial law set the stage for the, to feature the redemptive glory of Jesus Christ when by a very touch of his sovereign hand, the lepers were healed and welcomed into the kingdom of God as a picture of how you can be cleansed from the leprosy of your own sin? Are you willing to repent from that which keeps you outside the camp right now that was pictured in the Old Testament law to turn from the leprosy of your selfish gain and worthless pursuits? If you answer in that way, you will shut that objector up right now, and that shouldn't be your goal. But to, uh, you know, in, like to win just for your, uh, your own sake, your pride's sake. But to silence the objection of the enemy in the interest of the glory of God should be your goal. And these kind of answers, with the word of God correctly understood in context, they will authoritatively shut down the objections of the naive and of the ignorant and of the rebellious. And you see how your strength and encouragement can be built by recognizing that it is true when Psalm 119, 40 says, Behold, I long for your precepts. Or 39, Behold, your rules are good. Are God's rules good? Absolutely. And if I don't understand, I can always answer. I'm not sure, but I'll get back to you. But when you do, have faith that God will give you an answer that the word, and a word and wisdom that your adversaries cannot comprehend. That's the promise of Jesus Christ. There is a relationship between life and obedience. We are privileged to have good rules. We are privileged to have desirable precepts, and that privilege is by grace alone, through the cross of Jesus Christ alone, for the elect alone, those who God, by His mercy, has chosen to save. And what does this yield? In the end, it yields resurrecting righteousness. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Now, I submit to you in this last verse, in this section, is a forward-looking messianic hope. In your righteousness, how does the righteousness of God become ours? It's in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, give me life, is the heart cry of Psalm 119.40. That imputation of Christ's own righteousness credited to our behalf is the fulfillment of Psalm 119.40. And what does it yield? That is the righteousness of Christ. Your faith in Jesus Christ, it yields life and life more abundantly, yea, eternal life, and a life of purpose, and a life of growing obedience as Jesus changes you into his image and gives you the vision of being a dutiful servant of his, and as we say, the third purpose of the law, to teach you how to follow your Lord and Savior, who is worthy of following because he is sovereign over all, and is lovely because he has stooped low in his mercy to give his own blood that you does not deserve, in exchange for your soul. Do you love him? And will you worship him? I pray that you would and would do so more consistently as a result of his word proclaimed today. Remember, there's a relationship between knowledge and obedience. Therefore, saints, let us seek to understand the scriptures. There's a relationship between desires and obedience. Therefore, let us seek to grow in our love for the Lord and his word. There's a relationship between faith and obedience. Let us remind our souls of the truth of what Jesus has secured for us. And let us remember that in following Christ, it leads to life and life eternal. Let us close in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for the glories of your scripture revealed and fulfilled and available for us through the Holy Spirit and the work of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would take these words from the page and write them on our souls that we might be faithful servants of you, that we might grow in our obedience, that we might grow in our representation of Jesus. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity we've had to consider your word, and I pray that you would use it to teach us, O Lord, and that the words of a mere man would fade into obscurity and the word of Jesus Christ would remain, and his instructions would change our souls and encourage our strength and strengthen our faith and yield fruit abundantly to the praise of his glorious name. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.